Amen. Thank you, Tanner. Hey, grab a copy of God's Word, or uh, if you're turning that on on your phone, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. My name is John Chastain. I serve as one of the pastors here. It's an honor to bring God's Word to you today. Last week, Tanner introduced this sermon, this new sermon series, um, which is called the, The New Normal. And it's the new normal because Jesus is not only offering us new life in the gospel, but in addition to the new life that he offers, it's a new way of living as as followers of Jesus. It's in this new way of living is the pathway to human flourishing. And so as we look here in Matthew chapter 5, this is the sermon on the mount. As Tanner mentioned last week, Jesus' magnum opus, like his, his... his significant sermon that he gives to his disciples here. And last week we jumped into the Beatitudes. As we think about this sermon, this sermon in a lot of ways shapes who we are to be as followers of Christ, but it it isn't everything that we need to know about the gospel. As Jesus is teaching this sermon to his disciples, what we don't have included here is what we know is the end of the story. We know where Jesus is headed. We see his, his perfect life, his, his sinless life, but he's headed to the cross where he lays down his life, and then he raises from the dead. And so as we hear these words in this sermon, we hear them in light of the grace that's to come through the death and resurrection of Christ, because it's in his death and resurrection where we look to the cross, we see that our sins have been paid for, and we believe we are made alive. As I, as I look to the cross, I'm not dead anymore. I am alive in Christ. That is the grace that is extended to me in Christ. And so now, as I hear these words, I can stand in that grace and follow. I can follow and hear these words, not as a means to earn God's favor and approval, but because I have received God's grace. And now, I'm living this new normal, this, this way of life as those who follow Jesus. And so, We see that in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the foundation. We stand in the grace of God. And then in these Beatitudes, last week Tanner introduced an imagery of a ladder. And he says, as we think of the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, these these statements that are are true about who we are in Christ, but but Tanner said they're implicitly hortatory, which they're, they're, they're begging that we are to pursue these even more. He says, the order is not accidental. He says, like a ladder. As you go up the ladder, you start with the first step. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, the title of the sermon last week was E to F. This picture of driving your car and you're on empty. And you need to go to fullness. And the way we go to fullness... And the Beatitudes is it starts with this first step. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You will never get to fullness until you look and you see the emptiness. Tanner said, you come empty-handed before God in order to receive and experience his fullness. In a lot of ways, this is what we've been talking about this year as a church. Our vision for 2018 has been the fullness of God in us overflowing through us. And so last week we, we started 
in the Sermon on the the Mount, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're in Matthew 5, verse 2 now. Verse 3, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, we start with blessed are the poor, and by the fourth beatitude, it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst and are satisfied, are filled. We start empty and we end filled. Another imagery that was helpful for me this week as I was doing some, some studying was, um, we got any gym, gymnasts in here? We, hey, there we go. Yeah, this one's for you right here. It was this picture. You're standing on a platform and you want to get to another platform over there and there's seven rings that are hung down in front of you. And the way you're going to get to the platform is you're going to grab the first ring and you're going to pull it back and your momentum's going to take you to the second ring. You guys with me? Even my non-genmas in here. You guys are following. You see this? And, but here's the point. We've got to get to the rings of purity and of peacemaking. Like, we got to get there. But we won't get there unless we start with the first ring. And so the order is important. So last week we looked at emptiness to fullness, and what we're going to look at today is how this fullness leads to the fruit of godliness. The fruit that flows out of a life that starts empty and is filled with the fullness of God in tangible ways. What does this now look? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it tangibly look like? What is the fruit of godliness? So another way to think about this, we've talked about starting poor in spirit. We've talked about grabbing the rings. These first few beatitudes are like the roots of godliness. Like as you look at like how do you cultivate and and this is everybody in the room. Whether I mean you're like hey today how do I take this next step to grow in pursuing Jesus or hey I'm making disciples. How do I help others take their next step? The beatitudes are for you guys. They're for us. And so the roots of a godly life start with poverty in spirit mourning, meekness, a hungering. As those roots continue to cultivate and grow, they are going to produce the fruits of what we're going to look at today. And so let's look here at our text today. We're going to dig in here to verses 7 through 12. So I pick back up in Matthew 5, verse 7, where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The main point that I want you to see today is this. Let dependence on God produce the fruit of godliness in your life. Let dependence on God produce produce the fruit of godliness 
in your life. Here's what we're going to do in the rest of our time. We're going to walk through these four Beatitudes, and we're going to see the fruit that we are to be striving for as we are disciples of Christ. The first one is this. It is the fruit of mercy. The fruit of mercy. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. What is mercy? Oftentimes we talk of mercy in relationship to grace. D.A. Carson in his, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, describes it this way. Mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one whom the love is to be showered. Let me repeat that. Mercy is a loving response. Notice this. Mercy and grace, they're both, they flow out of the love of God. They're connect, it's the loving response toward And it's prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one whom the love is to be showered. Let me give you an example here. Um, Many of you guys know that, man, I love sports. Right now, I'm coaching my son's flag football team. And uh, just as a sidebar, we're three and one. It's been a a good season. I've shared about my baseball in the past and not so good record, but uh, football is going much better. when we play, there's what's called a mercy rule. You know, and, and they don't have these like in, in the older leagues, you know, but for the younger, younger leagues, if, you, if, if a team gets up by 28 points or more, the mercy rule is this, is it goes into scrimmage mode. And so the team that's already scored 28 points doesn't even get to have the ball on offense anymore. The other team gets three straight series to score and then after that, the game's over. The point, it's, hey, look, you're up 28 to nothing. Look, you're gonna win the game. Have mercy on us. And so the pictures we think of mercy is that somebody, you know, you could say the other team is in a helpless, miserable state and loving response to them is, hey, we're not gonna score 28 more. In fact, the rule is we're, we're stopping and we're gonna give them a chance. Increasingly, it, it's flowing out of out of mercy, that is a picture of mercy. When we think about blessed are the merciful, really, it starts with our God, who's a merciful God. You know, if we were to go back in the Old Testament, one of the, the key passages that teach us about who God is, it's Moses, who in Exodus, who's saying, God, like, I want to see your face. And he says, you can't see my face, but, but I'll let my goodness pass before you. And in Exodus 34, this is what happens. It says the Lord passed before him and it says the Lord proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are called to pursue mercy towards others because our God is a merciful God. Let me show you another one. One of my favorite passages, Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, Paul starts, you are dead in sin and trespasses in which you once walked. But in verse 4, it says, but God. Why? Being rich in mercy. What was the, the miserable, helpless state? God looks upon sinners. We deserve the wrath and judgment and punishment of God. And yet God looks down and he's, The beauty of the gospel and the cross is that God is just, and yet he's also loving. And so God being rich in mercy, his love, his response towards us is sending Christ to go and pay the penalty that we deserve. We see that displayed 
in the gospel. And so as Jesus here is saying, blessed are the merciful, it's those who see that our God is a God who extends mercy, and they go and imitate that in all of their relationships. But here's an important thing as we think about mercy. You won't be merciful to others if you're not aware of your own need for God's mercy. Do this with me. Turn to Luke 18. Just a few books over. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 18. Jesus shares a parable in verse 9. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus says this. It says, And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, not mercy. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is why you will not see the fruit of mercy in your life towards others unless you start with poor in spirit. Because when you're poor in spirit, you see that you are empty. You are deserving of the wrath of God. You are one who is in much need of mercy. You don't stand as the Pharisee up above looking down. You stand as one who's received mercy. And so as one who's received mercy, I extend mercy to others. So one, we've got to be aware that we are in need of God's mercy. But also, our experience of receiving mercy is also what guides and motivates us to be merciful. Um, I'll compare it with this. I'll compare Blessed are the merciful with the call to forgive others. In a couple places in, in the Bible, um, what is the motivation that we're called to forgive others in the Bible? One is Ephesians 4, 32. I think it says, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so the cause to extend forgiveness because you're one that's had a great debt that you could not pay and you've been forgiven. So who are you then to withhold forgiveness from somebody else? This happens in the same way. We show mercy because we have received mercy. So when we go back to Matthew 5, go back to Matthew 5, back to the Beatitudes here. When it says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy Jesus isn't saying, this is the, like, you're earning mercy from God. 
Like, go do these things, be merciful, so then one day you'll actually, you'll earn this mercy from God. He's saying, no, the, the way you're able to extend mercy is you're, you see yourself as one who has received mercy and you're in constant need for God to extend more and more mercy. And so you go and you extend mercy to others. So what does this tangibly look like? I believe blessed are the merciful, and this is, by the way, the new normal of living. This what ought to characterize our life. We are looking in all of our relationships, how can we be compassionate and gentle toward the miserable and the helpless? Maybe it helps you to think about it in a couple different frameworks. How do, how do your hearts break for those who are needy and suffering spiritually? And this is where when you take a step in these Beatitudes, you've got to search what's going on in the heart because what's going on in the heart produces tangible effects in your life. Like when you're in small group with other people, do you find yourself responding with compassion and patience and gentleness towards others who are growing in Christ? Or do you find yourself up here looking down? So blessed are the merciful. We're looking like who are suffering spiritually? You know, this helps me. For those who don't know Christ, I'm I was just like them, dead in my sin. I, I have received mercy, and so I don't turn my nose up to those who are acting in very wicked and evil ways. Even though I want to pray, God, God, like, your kingdom come. Like, I see that apart from God's grace and mercy, I would be just like them. And so I can extend mercy even to those who are not following Christ. This is what my Jesus later on could say, and we're going to get to it when we talk about persecution, but what do you, how do you treat your enemies? He says, don't, be overcome, don't overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. Pray for your enemies and love them. Be merciful as you have received mercy. So how do we respond to those who are suffering spiritually? What about this? Our hearts should break for those who are needy and suffering physically. And I would say, because God does both. You see God who has a heart for those, it breaks for those with spiritual suffering and physical suffering. This is why at times you hear us talk about mercy ministries within the church. It's because we want to be merciful. And so like, what's like, uh, for Lee and I, a mercy ministry for us is our heart breaks for orphans. Why do we pursue orphan care? Why have we adopted Zoe and we're pursuing another adoption? It's not because, hey, God, look how great we are and we, we want you to like, no, it's, we've received, we know what it's like to be one who's in need of mercy and we want to go and find a tangible way to extend that. So like pure religion is this, care for orphans and widows. Like that's a tangible way. I want to be merciful to these. And, and there's more, addiction, Poverty, like we could go on and on. Like as a church, Dave Carson says this when he's writing about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, here's why we'll know true revival's happening. It's gonna start with poor in spirit and it's gonna be fleshed out. And one of the primary ways is gonna be mercy. It's gonna be the church that's overflowing in mercy in tangible ways towards others. Lord, would you make us a merciful church? Imagine the impact, not just within our walls here, but on our city. It's just increasingly what's described, blessed are 
the merciful. Lord, break our hearts. Help us be merciful toward the miserable. Second, we see the fruit of mercy. We also see the fruit of purity. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It shouldn't surprise us here that a pure heart is required to see God. I mean, Old Testament, we, I think Tanner preached on this a couple of months ago. What's Psalm 24 say? I think we got on the screen here. Psalm 24 says this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then we jump ahead in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, verse 14, it says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Like, we really need to hear these. And yet as we hear these, is anybody confronted with the reality that I've got a problem? Later in Matthew, do you know how Jesus describes the heart? He says, it's not what you eat that defiles you. What you eat goes through you and is expelled. What defiles you? It's what comes out of the heart. In Matthew 15, he says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It reminds us of what the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful. Above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? So in the background, we have this, hey, be, be pure in heart. And you're, you're confronted with, look at the wickedness that's in my heart. But this is the good news and the beauty of the gospel. In the Old Testament, one of the main promises tied with the coming of Jesus in the new covenant is that God would cleanse and shape my heart. In Ezekiel 36, it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what Jesus does in the gospel. When he dies and he raises from the dead, there's, there's a new identity and new potential. He changes our hearts. He cleanses us. He puts his spirit in us. And now we hear this call, blessed are the pure in heart. You see, because in the gospels, one of the primary people Jesus interacts with are the religious leaders. We just read in Luke 18 about the Pharisee, right? These religious leaders... You could go read Matthew 23. He unpacks the woes on the Pharisees. What were they described by? External religiosity. They're like whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but on the inside, what does he say they're full of? Dead people's bones. And so as Jesus is saying pure of heart, he's speaking in a lot of ways to that Pharisee, the religious leaders who, hey, I fast twice a week, I give a tithe of all I have, and yet there's a heart that longs and chased after other things. And so the call here is not to pretend 
to be somebody on Sunday. That you're not Monday through Saturday. It's a call to a purity that, 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 that fleshes itself out in every sphere of our lives. One, one passage in the New Testament in 1 John really helps us think about this. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, I've got on the screen here. Listen to this. John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we be, will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is how John argues. One day, we are going to see God. Amen? Go read the end of the story. Revelation 21 and 22. There's no need for sun in the new creation because the glory of God and we shall see his face. We will be with God. We will see him. John says when we see him, we will be like him. But until that day, we're on this process of what we call sanctification where I'm progressively killing sin and growing more and more to be like Christ. I will not be experientially completely pure until that day. Positionally, my new identity is I've been washed clean and I've got the Spirit of God in me and now in practice, I'm becoming that. But here's how John argues, that last verse there. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Here's his argument. The future hope of purity drives my present pursuit of purity. The king is pure, and in the future kingdom, only the pure will be admitted. And so I'm going to pursue now. He says this, and who hopes purifies himself. And so we will one day see God face to face. Right now, we see God through the eyes of faith. And as we continue to pursue purity, we grow in intimacy and in fellowship and fullness of God. You see, it's the sin in our lives that hinders us from by faith seeing the goodness and greatness of God. And so as a church, like as we pray for revival, and the fullness of God in us, what's going to happen? It's going to be us turning from darkness and uncleanness and from sin and confessing that and wholeheartedly in every sphere of life pursuing purity. My mind, my thoughts, my hands, my work, my relationship, all of it. It's to say, God, would you help me to be pure, single-minded, love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and pursuing cleanness in all of my interactions when nobody's looking? How can you grow this week in purity? God, would you give us pure hearts? We want to see more of you. The fruit of mercy, the fruit of purity. Third, the fruit of peacemaking. In verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, 
For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed. Notice what it doesn't say. He doesn't just say blessed are those who are peaceful. He says peacemaker. Like This is an active pursuit. I am a peacemaker. I'm not just a peaceful person. I want to I pursue making peace. Now here, I want us to think about this in a, in a couple of different ways. On one hand, let's remember that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Because what is it between us and God that hinders peace? It is sin. And so what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection is he, he is the solution to the, to the enmity, to the war between us and God. Right now, if, if you're here today, you're exploring Jesus. I love it. I'm glad you're here. But what the Bible tells us is that until we place faith in Jesus, there's enmity between you and God. There's war. There, there's not peace. The way that you get peace and you're reconciled, this language of reconciliation is, is related to there's war and now there's peace. Jesus brings that. When you look to the cross, you confess your sin, you believe in that, you are now reconciled, you're brought near to God. That's what Jesus does. He makes peace between us and God and between man and man. Because you know why we have war with each other? That's because of sin. And as God continues to sanctify me, he allows me to actually pursue peace with others. So he is the great peacemaker. Now, as we think about this, I want to I look at it in two fronts. On one front, I want us to think about gospel peacemaking, and then I want us to think about relational peacemaking. If Jesus is the great peacemaker, in one sense, like, when we, when we are challenging you and we are compelling you to go and, and share the gospel, like it's flowing out of Jesus being the great peacemaker. In Isaiah 52, this is what Isaiah says. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. When we're going and proclaiming the gospel, it is a message of peace to those who are at enmity and war with God. The way that you can be reconciled to God and have peace is in Jesus. And so, like, blessed are the peacemakers in one sense, we are compelled to go share Christ because that is what brings peace and offers peace to others. That's gospel peacemaking. When we think about relational peacemaking, this is how we make peace with others. There's nothing in this passage that restricts the call to be peacemakers to just the proclamation of the gospel to evangelism. So let me just pause here. I want you to think about relational peacemaking. One of the resources that's been incredibly helpful to me, and I try to pass on, is a resource, resource called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. There's peacemaking for families, peacemaking for marriages. There's a student version. Like, there's all kinds of different versions. And at the foundation of peacemaking, it's what he calls the four Gs of peacemaking. If you can remember these four Gs, this past summer, I, I, was, I oversaw our, our 30 Jensen students this summer. One of the first things we talk about in orientation is how do you do conflict resolution? And it's the four Gs. This is what I shared with them. The first one is this, glorify God. When we think about being a peacemaker, you've got to realize that it's not about you. Because you know what's going to keep you from being a peacemaker? It's you. 
You're not pursuing the glory of God. You want your rights. So you, when you realize that peacemaking is about the glory of God, that is the foundational. Second is this. Get the log out of your own eye. What's the other problem to peacemaking? It's you. It's me. I'm saying this to myself here. And this is why Jesus says, why do you worry about the speck in your brother's eye when you've got this huge protruding, like, just log? It's like feet in length. You're completely unaware of it. What we want to do is we want to highlight the sin and junk in everybody else's life, and we don't want to turn the finger around and look in the mirror. Think about right now the relationships where there's not peace in your life. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's somebody at work. What, what we often talk about in our frustration is how, man, this other person. And here's the deal. I, I cannot change anybody, but I can change myself by the grace of God. And so start with the glory of God. I get the log out of my own eye. And as you think about peacemaking, let me just, I'll just give you a sidebar here. You can't blame the circumstances in your life for your responses. Your circumstances are just the heat in your life that reveal the junk in your heart. You're responding this way not because of the circumstance, but because of the sin in your heart. But we often say, well, if if the circumstance would change, I wouldn't act this way towards you. That's not to look inward. So to get the log out of your own eye, here's some other just things that are helpful for me. First, suspect yourself. I've learned this. If I'll just suspect, you know what? If there's problem, there's enmity, I'm probably at fault. I'm going to suspect myself. Second, I'm going to inspect myself. I'm going to look and say, and honestly before God, God, would you, and sometimes you need help with this. Sometimes the best thing for peacemaking is to go to somebody and say, you know what? I'm suspecting that I've just blown it. I need your help. I need you to really, I really want to see where I've blown it. Will you help me? Maybe it's another brother and sister in Christ. Maybe it's the person that you've sinned against. And it's the, I mean, just honestly confront it and say, you know what? You're right. I was, I was wrong there. Glorify God. Get the log out of your own eye. Third, gently restore. Notice the order of these. You can't go gently restore and help the other person take the speck out of their eye until you address the log in your own eye. That's why it's third. And so the gently restores, once you've looked inward and you've addressed and you've confessed and you've repented of the sin in your life, then you're in a place where you can go and you can help somebody else. As you, even as you own your own piece of it, you help them and gently restore, see the speck that's in their eye. And then fourth, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Your your translation may actually say children of God here. What's Jesus getting at? Some commentators argue if we just say children here, that we may miss the point of what Jesus is getting at. When, When he's talking about sons of God, this is imagery that he's, he's saying it's, it's not just about being a part of the family. As a son of God, this language would have been used in their time to 
to talk about how a son is reflecting his father. And here's what Jesus is saying. When you're a peacemaker, you reflect your God, who is a peacemaking God. It's more than just being in the family. You, you are reflecting that. And so, man, all of these, as we think about this, we're, the more we grow in our knowledge of who God is, the more that tangibly fleshes itself out. God is a merciful God. Would you just pursue this week? God, I want to know how merciful you are. And say, God, help me to do that. And then, God, you're a pure God. You, there, there's no sin that can be in you. Help that flesh itself out in my life. God, you are a peacemaking God. Show me how I can pursue peacemaking. And, and just to remind us, this is normal Christianity. I mean, just th think about this. Like, Satan would want nothing more in our church than to get us fighting with one another. Because if we're fighting with one another, you know what we're not concerned about? Gospel peacemaking. The mission of God. Seeing the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. They're too busy fighting with each other. They could care less about what's going outside of the doors. That's what he wants. But as a church, we're going to say, no. We are going to pursue peacemaking for the glory of God and the mission of God. And this is ought to, ought to be normal Christianity, that we're having these conversations and that we are not peace breakers or peace fakers. We're peacemakers. The fruit of peacemaking. And then finally, the fruit of joy and persecution. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you. False on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's interesting here that this last one gets an expansion. Now let me highlight a few things as we look at the Beatitudes. First of all, notice the reward. In verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Go back to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes, this is an, what they call an inclusio. What's shaping the Beatitudes is the kingdom of heaven. Or what the other gospels say, the kingdom of God. And D.A. Carson argues that the reason this one's is expanded is because in some ways it is the most telling. Here's what he says. He says it's the most searching of them all. If the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may be fairly asked where righteousness is being displayed in his life. Now notice the cause for persecution here. He talks about persecution, he called, and he expands it in verse 11. He talks about reviling those that are insulting you, and, and even malice. But notice the, the reason, verse 10, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is, man, we're, we're hungry and thirsting for living in a godly, godly kind of life. I'm pursuing that. I'm hungering for that. I'm thirsting for that. And in increasing measure, as I take steps, as I'm going up the ladder, as I'm grabbing these rings, 
you know what? It's becoming evident. You can't pursue righteousness in the closet. It's going to go public. Like when you follow Jesus, other peoples are, are going to take notice. In 11 and 12, he says, they're doing all of this against you falsely. What? On my account. What, what he's talking, he's not talking about those who are being persecuted because they're doing like crazy things for Jesus. He's talking about everyday normal Christianity. Those who are following Jesus and who are his disciples, who are pursuing godliness, and there's persecution. What may they look like? It may be physical persecution, but it could as simply be being ridiculed or persecuted by your family. It could be being ostracized by relatives. Maybe it's being insulted at work for honesty and truthfulness. As followers of Jesus, persecution shouldn't surprise you. We could, we could look at other places. Go to 1 Peter. I just, if you want to think about persecution, go to read 1 Peter 2 and 3. He says, look to Jesus who was persecuted. On, and he was insulted. And he was, of, of all, had no guilt. And how did he respond? He kept his mouth shut, and he patiently endured. And so later, he's going to call us to, he's going to, hey, what does like the flesh say to respond to persecution? I'm going to lash out in anger and war. He says, no, rejoice. Bless those who persecute you. Leave it up to God, who is the rightful judge. When persecuted, bless. Pray for your enemies. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. We can rejoice because our perspective is eternity. In all of these. Why are we pursuing purity? We're one day going to see God face to face and we're going to purify ourselves now because we know the king is pure and the kingdom we're headed to is pure and we look forward to this coming kingdom. where there will be peace. And so this persecution is a light and momentary trouble, but it pales in comparison to what eternity is going to be like. I want to invite the band to come up as, as we wrap up here. The fruit of mercy, the fruit of purity, the fruit of peacemaking, and the fruit of joy and persecution. You know what? The world has its own set of beatitudes. Some have called them the unbeatitudes. Think about this. Kevin DeYoung in an article says, Blessed aren't the poor, but blessed are the rich. For theirs is the kingdom of pleasure. Blessed are those not who mourn, but who feel good about themselves. For they shall be confident. Blessed are not the meek, the aggressive. For they shall control the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for righteousness, but for recognition. For they shall be noticed. 
Blessed are the demanding, not the merciful, for they shall for they shall receive what's coming to them. Blessed are the sexually liberated, not those who pursue purity and a clean heart, for they shall be their own gods. Blessed are the scheming, for they shall be called children of the powerful. And then finally, not blessed are those who are persecuted, but blessed are those who are praised by the world, for theirs is the kingdom of now. You see, Jesus is calling us to pursue what he's saying is this is what's going to lead to human flourishing, but the world is also calling you. There's another presentation by the world, another set of rings that they're pleading with you to grab a hold of. And each one of them requires faith. So here's my question for you as we wrap up today. Whose promises are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the world's promises? Are you going to hear the words of Christ as this is the way to true human flourishing? Ray Ortland in an article concludes in saying this, have you ever met one person who believed and lived by the world's unbeatitudes and came to the end a satisfied, radiant, wise person, even one? Jesus is saying this is the pathway to flourishing. I plead with you today, respond in faith. Let's pray. Father, The rings are presented before us. And God, even as we see the rings today, or the steps of mercy and purity and peacemaking and persecution, God, we're just reminded that we still need poor in spirit. We need to be emptied. And so God, I just pray. God, I pray as, as our church. God, we, we daily fight against the pleas of the world that are not leading to life. God, it's a walk of faith. God, help us today to respond in faith. God, I pray, make us a merciful church. Would you show each of us one tangible thing that we can do this week to cultivate mercy, whether that's pursuing a physical need or a spiritual need and responding with compassion. God, would you help us to pursue purity? God, I pray for men and women who are living in darkness and hiding in shame and guilt and pursuing all kind of uncleanness that they would see that is not life and that they would confess that sin and repent of it and come to Christ to be satisfied. God, I pray for relationships even in our church where there is not peace, but there's enmity. God, I pray today that men and women would go to each other and confess their sin. God, give us grace to see our sin and go and be reconciled. And God, I pray that Redemption Hill Church would such be characterized by the Beatitudes that Medford and Greater Boston would take notice. And God, I know persecution's gonna come and we're gonna be insulted and shamed, but God, would you increasingly give us joy and delight in imitating Christ? And would you help us to be prepared to respond in a way that doesn't respond with anger to persecution, but responds with mercy and kindness displaying Christ? God, send us out today as the God who makes peace to be those who proclaim peace 
God, help us. We need your help today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.